Hello, I'm David Mosscrop. Welcome to Open to Debate. We spend an awful lot of time talking about housing and development, and we should. But often lost in the conversation is how we manage rural land and housing. The vast majority of Canada is urbanized, but in case you were thinking what happens, quote unquote, out there has nothing to do with you, think again. Rural areas are home to plenty of homes and residential developments of their own, but they are also the site of this country's farmland. In the face of geopolitical shifts, climate change, and the ever-present concern of food security, rural development is an important issue. The bad news? Things are not going well, particularly in Canada's most populous province, Ontario. To understand the state of rural development, where things are headed, and how we might do better, we ask the fundamental question, who should care about rural development? My guest on this episode of Open to Debate is Jeff Wielden, a municipal councillor in Brighton, Ontario, a real estate agent, and a housing advocate. All right, let's start with precisely uh, what we mean when we talk about suburban and rural development. Can, can you set the stage for us a little bit here by telling us about the location, geography, and, and perhaps most importantly, the use of these spaces? Sure. Um, so I live in Northumberland County, Ontario, in a little town called Brighton. And so we're talking about towns that are about, Brighton's about twelve to 13,000 people. Nearby is Coburg, which is the biggest town in Northumberland County. It's about 25,000 people. Um, so these are small places that are on the edge of bigger places. Uh, a lot of people who live in Coburg actually commute to the GTA. Um, it's a place where a lot of our growth comes from retirees from the GTA. Uh, so a lot of these small towns and rural areas are seeing exponential growth from people who, especially during the pandemic, wanted to get out of town. Um, and this creates a lot of pressure on small municipalities with small tax bases, uh, small amounts of infrastructure to scale up rather quickly, uh, which creates a lot of interesting opportunities from an urban planning perspective. But from a purely a cost perspective and a sustainability perspective, it's a serious challenge. And a, a, a challenge for for whom precisely? I mean, so we're, we're going to get into this in, in a minute, but we're talking about not just folks who may be living there or working there, but, but in critical industries, including farming. Uh, yes. So I wanna, we're going to talk a lot about farming today. Uh, but before we get there, I want to I want to try to continue to set the stage for the for the problems we're going to discuss. I mean, you know, Canada's highly urbanized. It's increasingly urbanized. It's not we're not mm -hmm. done yet. The vast majority of Canadians live in cities, and that's trending up. Uh, but and this isn't some sort of you know, uh, utopian rustication paying. It's really just a question about what we might be missing. Is there mm -hmm. something being left behind or missed in the urbanization rush and the way that we're urbanizing? Um, I think that there is. Um, I think there are a lot of lessons that we could have learned from urbanization 50 years ago. Um, you know, Jane Jacobs in some ways is looking really good these days, but, um, and those lessons aren't being learned by the rapid urbanization of smaller centers. Um, but also we are also missing the fact that, um, as much as 
globally, urbanization is happening at a, at a really fast rate. Um, I, I think it was Mike Moffat who several years ago put out some numbers showing that there are more people leaving the GTA than, than arriving in it. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's not a lot more it's, um, but it, but it is more than it, than it are arriving. So the GTA is, is still growing, but the surrounding areas are growing faster and just in a more distributed way. And so the, the culture shock of that for small town folks who have two generations in the graveyard, um, suddenly having all of their neighbors be city folk, uh, can be really shocking for people. Um, there's a lot of division in small towns. People here sometimes use the word "cityets," which I really hate. Um, and uh, so, so there's a, a culture clash there. Um, I know I, I've also um, I've had clients um, who are black, and they ask, you know, what's it like living in the country? And sometimes not awesome. Some of these very small towns, um, there's still some really open racism and things like that. Some things that people might associate with um, small rural communities who frankly just don't have any diversity. Um, so those kinds of things, there's there's some growing pains happening in terms of uh, the, the mixture of urban and rural mindsets, of service expectations for municipalities. You know, we, people move to a town like Brighton from Oshawa or, or Toronto and they expect the same level of services that they've always had and, and we frankly just don't have it. Uh, so there's there's growth problems that way also in terms of the infrastructure that we have. You know, we uh, it takes a lot of money to lay down all of the roads and pipes and things to build new neighborhoods and as you know, sprawl is really expensive. The, the less dense we build our housing, the more expensive all the services are to service all of that housing. And uh, people who are coming from downtown often expect that they're coming to the country where they can have, you know, a quarter acre lot and, and still want to enjoy the same level of services, which puts a huge financial burden on the existing population and makes it really difficult to sustain municipal finances moving forward. I'm glad you brought up sprawl because we're going to talk about farmland soon and, and some of the pressures on, on farmland, which often get forgotten or ignored in the mainstream, but are absolutely critically important. But before that, I want to talk about the the sprawl and particularly the development of the Green Belt and the fallacy that rests behind the Ford government's plan to develop the Green Belt. Um, but let's start here. Is there any need whatsoever to develop protected environmental land? No, and it's been proven over and over and over again. Um, municipal associations like AMO have made it very clear that there's no need to develop the green belt or anything else. There's more than enough homes already approved for development um, to to meet the the pace of development that we need. The challenge is, are they actually being built? Um, so it, it's not not a matter of oh, we need to free up more land and we need to reduce the regulatory uh, regimes that that uh, are part of the process of developing land. It's a question of do we have workers to actually build these things. Uh, and that is far more of a barrier uh, than anything else at this point. You know, even the cost of materials for uh, the first part of the pandemic was really blamed as slowing down construction because it was raising costs so much. Um, the cost of materials has come down fairly significantly since then. Things are getting slowly back to normal in that respect. But the cost of labor has shot up instead. 
So um, if a developer already has approval for a subdivision, but they're not breaking ground, that's not on the municipality. That's not a, a matter of a lack of land. Uh, it's not even a matter of cost of, of materials. It's just, can we actually get them built? Uh, the other part I would say about this is that the type of housing we build is everything in this whole equation. Um, if you assume that building 1.5 million homes means building 1.5 million single-family detached dwellings with a white picket fence, then yes, absolutely, we would need more land. But that's not the kind of housing that we need. That does it, That's not good urban planning. Um, it's not even good rural planning a lot of the time. Uh, we need a diversity of homes. We need higher density for better services and lower infrastructure costs that it, that's creates, frankly, a more sustainable community, both environmentally and economically. Why are we so density averse? Is it, you know, you mentioned the white picket fence, and I don't want to be reductive here, but there are days where I think the kind of cultural creation of the single family home with the white picket fence, and the, let's be honest, the way it's been constructed historically is the sort of father of the 2.5 kids comes home from work to the meal prepared and so on and so forth. And, you know, the kids can afford to go to college on a single salary. There's a sort of myth of the happy, settled middle-class life in this happy, settled single home dwelling. Um, you know, is it is it a market imperative? Is it a political imperative? Is it this cultural creation? Like, why are we so density averse? I think you're bang on with the cultural creation because um, we do associate that single-family detached dwelling with that middle-class tree. And we also tend to associate high-density housing with um, with subsidized housing, with slums, with poverty, with crime. Um, and, you know, I, I hear about all of it uh, from people, especially, you know, when you, when you run for office in a small town that's growing quickly, you hear an awful lot about uh, how density is ruining us. I, I once saw a resident stand up in a public meeting and say, we moved here to get away from those people. Now, she didn't say who those people are, but the price point on the homes that were going to be built next door to her was $300,000. <laughs> so, you know, first of all, that's still not particularly affordable, but the expectation was that, that these fourplexes were too affordable, that they were going to be bought up by landlords who were going to rent them out to people who were going to have too many cars for the driveway and were going to have too many people living in homes and there was going to be crime and vandalism and and so on. And some people spell this out very explicitly. Other people make vague generalizations, but I hear about it all the time. And and again, you know, it's I was talking about this today with someone. Uh, public housing around the world I mean, I, I don't want to cite Singapore. It's something I'm thinking about because I'm writing about it, but, you know, Singapore is always the asterisk, right? But, even you know, European states, including especially northern European states, public housing, for instance, can be beautiful. Tense, community living, happy, clean, safe, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There is a, a like you said, a real prejudice against any sort of, of non-single family dwelling here in this country particularly public housing, but it's not like it can't be done because we have examples all around the world and instantly lots of examples here of where it is done, right? So, I mean, how do we, well, I want to get to farming here in a second, but how do we try to reverse that prejudice? Because it is deeply, first of all, it's bad policy, but it's also deeply injurious to, to people. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I once uh, talked to a provincial official that I won't name, um, but uh, it was about the redevelopment of some provincially owned land. And I said, well, you know, the first thing that we need to think about is affordable housing. And they said, well, we don't want another Jane and Finch. Right. That was the go-to. Um, and so, you know, I'm not... I don't want to scapegoat people and say, oh, these people are classist or anything like that. Ultimately, what it comes down to is that change is hard, you know, and the person who buys um, their their picket fence um, and and it's backing onto woods or a field or something like that, they feel like they've moved to the country and this is the life that they want. And then the developer who built their house five years ago builds phase two. And their life changes dramatically. And, and I'm sympathetic towards that. I'm sympathetic to people who have fears and concerns that in some cases are related to past experience living in urban centers where, yeah, they did experience um, some horrible things sometimes. Um, and I, I never want to fault anyone for their traumas or anything like that. Um, but generalizations like that uh, not only are untruthful, but they actually make a lot of these problems worse because we end up in situations that we're, we're seeing now in this area where homelessness and overdoses are on the rise in small towns. Uh, so we're seeing a lot of the impact of not having adequate affordable housing in places where people are dead set against density for the reason, and, and they're creating the conditions that they are afraid would happen if we actually just had affordable housing. Yeah. Yeah. And there are other knock-on effects too, and this is where I want to get into to farming, in particular. Uh, you know, the the rural development creates a number of different pressures. A refusal to to adopt density as a primary principle of city development creates a number of cascading pressures. Uh, you might not think it, but that touches on farming. And I'm curious about what the pressures right now are on rural farm development uh, and. I want to get into industry and speculation as particulars, but are there before we do that, are there any others that we might might be thinking about? Well, I mean the the traditional reason that we lose farmland, and we hear all the time about oh Ontario loses so many acres of farmland a day, and sometimes you see it published as you know in in the standard metric of football fields, <laughs> we lose so many football fields of, of uh, farmland per day, but. Uh, the traditional reason that we lose farmland is because farming isn't particularly sustainable economically. Farmers right. don't make a ton of money. Um, and so what happens over time is that farmers, in order to stay in business, uh, will sell off small portions of their land. And, you know, a building lot is worth a hundred grand. The same amount of land for farming is sometimes worth a tenth of that. So... You know, if they need to to make ends meet, they can just carve off a little portion of their land, sell that, and they're in the black for a few more years. Um, the other thing that happens when farmers can't make it is that they sell off their land to another farmer who consolidates. And that's where you end up with, especially in like southwestern Ontario, you know, multiple thousand acres as a single farm. Um, in this area, uh, the the farm lots tend to be smaller. They tend to be around 40, 50 acres. And so those ones actually are very easily converted into non-agricultural land because it seems like, well, it's just a little bit. It's just 40 acres. 40 acres is actually a great amount of space for a multi-phase uh, subdivision. So 
uh, the smaller sizes of the lots lends itself to that kind of development because again, it doesn't seem like you know we're converting that much. It's not like we're losing a thousand acres of prime agricultural land. Um, the land around here isn't necessarily always even recognized as being quote unquote prime agricultural, which has more protection, uh, even though it can be just as productive. So they say, oh yeah, I mean, for a municipality doing a one-off approval of uh, of a sub plan of subdivision, it doesn't seem like they're they're really sacrificing much by having this one forty-acre lot go from being productive farmland toward being uh, a subdivision. But one by one, as those add up, uh, you end up you do lose a fair amount of farmland, but also. You know, because we're doing it in these in these small chunks, uh, the amount of parkland that we get out of these is also very small. We're supposed to set aside five percent of any development for parkland, um, and the the Ford government recently made that just a little bit smaller because they wanted more housing. Um, so you know, if you've got a small tract of land that you want to develop, and you're supposed to set aside five percent of it for parkland, well. It's, it's a postage stamp size park. And so municipalities tend to accept cash in lieu of parkland. Uh, but the, the value on that is like $1,000. Like it's a tiny amount of money that municipality gets for that parkland that they that wasn't built. Uh, developer gets an extra home on there. So that's all profit for them. Um, but the municipality loses the farmland and it loses the parkland that would normally be set aside because they're dealing in smaller sections. So we're, oh. you know, it's good that we're building housing, but we're getting the lowest density housing. We're losing the most possible um, green space, farmland, parkland. And and so, you know, I, I always tell people, let's save the trees. Let's save the, the, the farmland. Because when people oppose development, they say, well, we've got to save the trees. Suddenly the trees are important when there's a development involved. Um, and I say, well, then we need to build up and not out. Mm-hmm. Because because otherwise we lose these forty acres at a time, and it never seems like a big deal, but you know with twenty years of hindsight you could say oh that's how sprawl happens. W- without a doubt, I mean it's it's really just sort of boiling the frog, isn't it? I mean you, by the time yeah. you've noticed there's a problem, you know, you're pretty much a goner. Uh, but oh, you know this is a bit of, out of left field, but it just sort of it was occurring to me that in a world in which we pretend to increasingly care about food security and climate change, it strikes me that parceling out farmland that, that we don't have to get rid of because we're scared of density is presumably counterproductive. I mean, is that something you've come across or thought about? Uh, I mean, I think about it a lot. Um, and so I actually, I, I talked to uh, an economist from the Ontario Ministry of Agriculture the other day because I wanted I wanted to question some of these assumptions that I've had or, or these observations that I've had. And, and he really confirmed, I said, you know, if we were to keep doing this, if we were to build on everything that isn't prime agricultural land, could we actually still feed ourselves? And he said, well, we don't feed ourselves now. Right. So yeah, it's not particularly smart. Um, when I, when I was, uh, just out of high school, I had the benefit of, uh, five weeks in Japan, which was. Uh, a phenomenal experience because it was so different from where I grew up. I grew up in BC, small town, logging area, and I going to Japan, which has such incredible density, and yet they still have agricultural land. Um, and the, a third of the land in Japan is designated agricultural, and so they still have small towns that are farming oriented. 
uh, a third of the the land in Japan is too steep to build on because they have very steep mountains there. Mm-hmm. And they still have nature reserves and things like that. And so, you know, the massive population of Japan is crammed into a space that is itself one third the size of BC. And they only build on one third of it. Um, and they have a, in in some respects, a healthier society mm-hmm. than we do. You know, so we are we are absolutely land hogs, and if they can prioritize the, the reason that they set aside so much land for agriculture is because after World War II, it was very clear to them that they were not self sufficient. Right. Um, they lost very badly in that respect, and so they decided that they wanted to make sure they could at least provide their own rice. Now, I don't know if they still do. But um, the idea that a place as bountiful as Canada is import dependent for food uh, when we live in, in some of the best farmland in the world is bizarre to me. Well, and on top of it, I mean, I mean, it's such a cliche, but everything is, is linked and it really is. In a world in which we have international security concerns, some of which we have created for ourselves, but some of which we very much haven't, some of which are our responses to to very serious international developments. Uh, you know, we, we've been sort of talking about the need to be a little bit more self-sufficient. And it strikes me as geopolitically a bad move as well to to be increasingly uh, dependent on, on other states, I mean, given, especially given climate change. I mean, I don't think this is another issue, but I want to just touch on it briefly. We haven't wrapped our heads around the shifting global order and what that's going to look like, especially uh, when the worst of climate change begins to arrive. And it seems like we're just going every day a little further away from, from where we need to be going, which means that when we eventually have to go to where we got to go to survive, we're going to be all that much further away. It's going to be all that much more difficult to do so. Yeah, I mean, because it's with with climate change, it's not just a matter of um, imports are going to get more expensive and more difficult to get, but it's also a matter of we're more likely to have crop failure. I mean, hail damage can wipe out crops, flooding. You know, I used to live in Manitoba for a while, and it's just a given. Certain farmers have a standing agreement with the government there that they're going to get paid out every year that they need to breach the the dam around Winnipeg to to let the water out so it doesn't flood the city. Um, if we continue to sacrifice our ability to grow food for the sake of our ability to build houses, um, we're just making ourselves less resilient at a time when resilience is the most important it's ever been. Let's just say I try to remain hopeful. And and we're going to try to end on, if not necessarily hopeful notes, but at least some productive notes of what we might do about all this mess. But before we get there, I want to go a little deeper into this issue. Uh, the the farm issue by talking about uh, changing industry and speculation, particularly yes. if we might uh, cannabis and uh, uh, development speculation on land. These are threats to to farmland. These are threats to farmers. Uh, how how is industry and our industry and speculation shaping uh, farmland in Ontario right now? Absolutely. Well, I've I've experienced this firsthand with clients. I've got clients who are farmers. And they're looking to buy more farmland, which is fairly rare for a farmer these days. Typically, as I said before, uh, when farmers get out of farming, uh, bigger farms tend to consolidate their land. And and so we end up with fewer farmers overall. The trends on the number of active farmers is going down, down, down and has been for a very long time. The amount of farmed land 
is staying about the same. It's going down as well, um, but the, it's it's fewer larger farms. But I, I've got some some friends, some clients who are uh, looking to grow some organic grain and they want to buy some more farmland. And um, the last several farms that we've been to uh, were they were farms say five years ago. They were bought um, by foreign investors. Um, they were converted to cannabis operations, which means that hundreds of thousands of dollars went into upgrading electrical equipment and uh, insulating the barns so that they're they're completely insulated from the cold and from light and setting up lots of lighting. And they don't look like they actually produced anything. But here they are a few years later, their their cannabis business has obviously failed. And they're they're selling this land at a price that's about double what they paid for it a few years ago. In some cases, more than double. So how can a farmer uh, who, you know, as I said, farmers don't make a lot of money. How can a farmer buy land that's doubled in value just by virtue of uh, a speculation on the cannabis industry that failed? And so what happens is they're looking at these and they're thinking, oh man, this is going to cost us so much more. They're looking for ways to try and afford this land so they can actually just farm it. And then they end up, we end up losing uh, the bid to a housing corporation, a numbered company or some holding company. Um, and that's happened a couple times now. Um, and so I, I did ask the, the economist about this as well. And, and he confirmed like, yeah, that happens a lot. Uh, he's a farmer himself and he says he's seen it himself too in this area. Um, and so you've got cannabis speculators have doubled the value of the land, pushing the farmers uh, out of their financial ability. And then the housing speculators will step in and buy it. Now, they probably can't get that much agricultural land rezoned right now. But in five years, if we're getting close to that uh, deadline or for how we have to build 1.5 million houses, how long will it take for the rules to change so that that land can be developed, <laughs> they can afford to sit on it. But whether or not they ever build on that land, they've already taken out of the uh, active farming community. You know, they might rent it out to to a farmer and say, "Yeah, you can continue to farm these fields until we do something with it." And so it might even still be actively farmed. But just the fact that they own it means that um, sort of it, its days are numbered. It is now out of the hands of actual farmers. Um, and it's in a situation where it is not going to be sustainably farmed um, because it's there for other purposes. So just the, just the fact that someone can buy land, because anybody can buy any land, but if somebody buys it for non-agricultural purposes, um, the price shoots up immediately and then it's no longer affordable for farmers. The great example is, of course, the, the Green Belt. Uh, when it was announced, when Bill 23 came out, and they said that they were going to change a, a whole bunch of rules about how development can work in order to build more homes faster. Uh, not long after that, they said, oh, and by the way, we're also going to do some land swaps on the green belt. And so I, I looked at where the property was and I, I opened up um, my GIS mapping software to, to look at, okay, who owns this land? And the first lot that I clicked on uh, that was in this land swap had sold a month earlier for $8 million. That was a farmer's field in like a double protected. It's agricultural land, so it's protected by its zoning. And it was in the Green Belt, so it's protected by the Green Belt Act. 
it was not worth $8 million. It wasn't worth $800,000 probably, except if you can develop it. So as soon as speculation comes around, uh, the cost of land shoots up, then you're not, it's not going to be affordable for housing anyway, because it's not like they got a deal on it. Um, certainly not going to be affordable for agriculture moving forward. Um, so all of our best uses for that land are, are no longer applicable because of the speculation. Does the Ford Greenbelt move send the message that these spaces might very well be open for business in the future? Because I can see a cycle here of Ford makes his Greenbelt play. People get the idea that there's going to be more of this in the future. The more they believe there's going to be more of it, the more they pursue it, the more they have an interest in pressuring the government to pursue the change to open up, the more it gets opened up and the cycle continues. Like it strikes me that there's a very obvious development pressure cycle on a government that's already inclined to be developer friendly that could just yes. you know, produce more of the same. I, I'm inclined to agree. Uh, obviously, they would deny that. But uh, they introduced a new act yesterday. And so I got my first look at it today. Um, and it says here, the Greenbelt Plan, we will maintain all Greenbelt Plan protections, including policies on environmental and agricultural lands. Should a new provincial planning statement be created, we would amend the Greenbelt Plan to continue all existing protections. Now, I'm glad that they're responding to all of the pressure about restoring the Greenbelt, but I have no idea what that sentence means. Uh, so... Yep. I'm not inclined to believe that they're actually going to protect the green belt. Um, they, the, as we said before, it's been said to them over and over and over again that we don't actually need this land. And it just so happens that the lands that they included in the land swap out of the green belt were already owned by developers, some as recently as a month of pre prior. So I, I take everything they say about environmental protection with a grain of salt. Oh, I take everything they say about everything with a grain of salt. I, I, I take it a step further. I don't trust them at all, not for a moment. Uh, but that doesn't mean they won't get reelected, of course. I mean, that, and that's part of the of the problem is that we continue to return these people and they continue to do the same thing over and over again. And uh, and they can get away with it because it's actually really easy to greenwash. And yes. I, um, and you know. I will also give them the benefit of the doubt. I think they actually believe what they're saying. At the end of the day, that's what we're looking for is someone who can actually can actually say something with a straight face, mean it, and and deliver it. And that's not what we get from the Ford government on, on environmental protection or increasingly on any interaction with municipalities. Yeah, um, and you know, when I went to the Roma conference in January, there were protests outside. They had uh uh, provincial politicians there, um, and a whole lot of people protesting, you know, save our green belt, things like that. But the real fury was inside at the rural Ontario municipal association conference where, uh, municipalities were letting the provincial government have it over bill 23 and all of the changes that they made to the way that municipalities fund themselves, uh, through development charges, the way that, uh, the government was enacting top down uh, planning legislation, like just basically telling all municipalities across the province, you all have the same provisions now when it comes to uh, certain zoning things. Like there was zero consultation, zero respect shown. Um, so at the very bottom of this new thing they released yesterday is listening to municipalities. 
we've listened to municipal feedback and have postponed certain elements to give you time to adjust. Oh, very, very kind of them. I, yeah. Um... Uh, but no, they, they've, they have a, a long history of doing something without talking to anybody and then facing backlash and then walking in the back and saying, oh yeah, we've heard you. We listen, we listen to the people. So we've heard you. Um, but this is round four for the green belt. So not sure they're listening very hard. No, no, I, I, I'm, and I mean, of course, you know, if you keep playing this game where you don't consult and you only pull back when you get shit from people, plainly your goal is to sneak through the ones where people are either too, too busy, too tired, too preoccupied to push back. Anyways, that's a whole different episode. Let, let's talk ah. solutions. Let's let's yes. talk solutions. We've got the in the final ten minutes that we have together. Let's talk about how we might push back and what we might do better. So, if you're approaching this from a policy perspective, you're in the chair. What are you recommending? Because we obviously we need to build housing, but we also need to obviously there's going to be some rural development. There's going to be some industrial development. Uh, yeah. But we need to protect farmland. What what's the what's the approach here? Yeah, so I mean the the pr- approach that they are taking is uh, is not completely terrible. Uh, you know they they want to have up to three units dwelling units per house in any zone. So that that gets rid of exclusionary zoning, uh, which is something that some municipalities use to to basically prop up rich neighborhoods um, and say, well, no, there's not going to be any renters here. These are big bungalows that are going to stay big bungalows. And so um, a lot of municipalities were already starting to say, yeah, no matter what zone you're in, you can have a, a basement suite, you can have a laneway suite, something like that. Um, so the province has said, no, everybody gets up to three dwelling units per home. Um, so that's not terrible, um, but it's still just on the high end of low density to have two to three dwelling units on a lot that size. So small municipalities need to start looking at, is it is it possible to get uh, medium density in our downtowns, for example? You know, in, in my town, uh, the tallest building is two stories. We can go higher than that. You know, um, is there any reason why the highest density uh, development in our town was built in the 1860s? <laughs> Because they were building uh, a type of building back then that was based on uh, buildings in in cities in Europe and and just older style of cities that were not car dependent, you know. So uh, we can start making planning decisions that make us less car dependent, that increase zoning in our downtown areas, so that we can increase our population and the honestly the tax base for a smaller amount of land so that we don't need as much infrastructure to service the same number of people. Because um, sprawl is is not economically sustainable. Roads are half of our capital budget, right? Uh, it's, it's a lot of money every year just to be able to drive around. And honestly, to waste time driving around a lot of the time if you might have services closer. So let's not continue to expand outward, but let's go upward. So that that's the first step. Um, in terms of losing farmland, um, we're going to continue to lose farmland as long as farming is not economically sustainable. If farmers can't make any money farming, then 
their farms are going to be continue to be consolidated. They're going to uh, continue to have to carve off portions of farmland in order to keep their business healthy. Um, and the, the other part of it is that um, as farmers retire, they're not giving their farm to their kids anymore because their kids don't want it. Yeah. It's like small and town newspapers. That's right. Yeah. It's not profitable. It's not sustainable. And so, you know, if a developer wants to pay $1.5 million for, for a hundred acre farm, that's twice as much as what someone else is willing to pay for it. That's a much better retirement for them. Uh, so, I mean, that's obviously a much bigger uh, policy question of how do we make farming actually economically sustainable um, and environmentally sustainable at the same time. Um, it's, you know, it's more than just everybody buy organic, right? Mm -hmm. Um, there's a whole lot that would need to go into that conversation. Um, and then the other part of it is that we need to have a, I don't want to just say like a deinstitutionalization, but I think that a lot of the time when people resist zoning and resist changes because they feel excluded by the process. And so having, having uh, more active communities, I mean, one of the downsides of sprawl is that people, uh, if you have to drive everywhere, that you only ever leave your home in your car. You know, a lot of people even have attached garages. So they go from their house straight into their garage, into their car, and nobody is ever outside without a car. Uh, so we don't know our neighbors. We don't know the people down the block. We don't look out for each other. Um, and we also, uh, we, we feel disconnected from the institutions that govern our lives. You know, a lot of people feel like they, they couldn't make it to a council meeting even, even if they wanted to. They don't know the language or jargon that's used there. And so they they struggle to participate in our democratic processes. And, and, and then they're, they feel like these changes happen whether or not they show up. So people come to a planning meeting and I've actually heard them say to each other in the back row, I don't know why we come to these things. They're going to ram it through no matter what they do. Mm -hmm. And so during, during the last municipal political campaign, when I was elected, I, I spent most of my time talking to people, just explaining how the planning process works because it's not how they think. And, and once they, once they feel like they're no longer, in the dark about it, excluded from participating. And uh, once they, they feel like they they actually know what we're up against and how the process works, they're not mad anymore. And they're less likely to uh, oppose development, less likely to oppose that density. Um, you know, so a little bit of accessibility to the, to the conversation and the process can go a long way toward helping people feel like, oh, I'm actually part of this community. It's not just like I've got a put up barriers around my neighborhood like it's my kingdom. It's like, no, this is, you know, this is something that we are all invested in together. And that change in mindset can open up all sorts of possibilities. I, well, there, you're, you're ending on a, on my absolute passion project of better democratic institutions and participatory democracy, which makes me want to launch an entire different episode, but we've covered an awful lot in this one uh, quite quite succinctly, I think, and, and cogently, and I appreciate it very much. Uh, thank you very much for joining me here today. This is really um, a fascinating topic, and uh, I, I like that we were able to navigate and link it to some broader phenomenon. I think it's a real valuable discussion, and, uh, and I appreciate it very much. 
Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm a longtime fan, first time guest. We're going to make sure we, let's make sure we include that folks in the edits. <laughs> Whatever else we do, keep that bit. In fact, let's move it to the top. In fact, let's start every podcast with that. Uh, every, every podcast should start with someone saying nice things about me. Buy his book too. It's very <laughs> good. My book, yeah. Because then I go online and then I'm immediately humbled by the by the maddening crowd. So it's nice to have a little oasis here. Okay, so that brings us to time. My thanks once more to Jeff and as always to Carolyn Smith, Ross Clark, and Aisha Jara to make the show not just possible but infinitely better than it would be without them. And of course, always to you, the listeners. I hope you've enjoyed this discussion. We'll see you back here in two weeks.